world oversaturated with zombies and vampires dare to read the novel featuring obscure medieval monsters. Gasp as a nefarious baboon steals a sacred relic right out of a sultry witch's hands. Thrill as an elderly monk is forced into a knife fight against a bloodthirsty marauder. You like knife fights, don't you? Hello, I am Jack, and I welcome back to the Wages of Cinema podcast, and we return once again with a local vocal episode, uh, where I talk with uh, local filmmakers, actors, uh, authors, playwrights, artists, anybody who does something creative, uh, I want to hear from them. And this week I have a very special guest, uh, because... Um, actually, you've heard this person before. Uh, we did a, a review on our regular episode of Avengers: Age of Ultron, and uh, and this gentleman is somebody who I've known for a long time. But uh, um, very very cool news because he's just published his very first book uh, called the Brother the, the Sorry the Dolorous Brother. No. The right. Dolorous Adventure of Brother Banos. <laughs> I'm not going to edit that out. <laughs> this isn't that kind of interview. All right, so uh, the other person you hear is my very special guest, Mr. Matthew Catania. Thank you for coming on today. Thank you for having me. All right. So um, I thought first to kind of give um, the listeners a little bit of a taste of what this book is about. Um, I thought maybe it would be kind of fitting if uh, you read the literally the very first paragraph of your book because it's not spoiling anything but it gives a good indication of what is going to happen so let's let's hear a little bit of uh, the first paragraph of brother banos okay so you're hearing the dolorous adventure of brother banos yes. by matthew catania yes legend has it that once upon a time, when knights were brave, bold, and often be plagued, there was a Franciscan friar by the name of Brother Benos who existed between the grey rotting walls of an obscure monastery in a region of Savoy now called Les Huches. This centre of learning and piety was known as the Abbey of the Hidden Parks, wherein on one fine day, good Brother Benos, advanced in both age and girth, did conceive of an intention to visit his first cousin on his mother's side, whom lived far away in the idyllic land of bliss. So it's called thusly for the idyllically blissful manner of devout life enjoyed by the denizen within its ramparts. Okay. Um, so that, I think, gives the audience a little bit of a flavor of this. Uh, so this book is... Um, we could say that it's set in medieval times pretty precisely, right? Yeah, the, the very tail end of the medieval ages, right before the Renaissance kicks in according to historians okay yeah because that's something that i think gets sometimes a little bit mixed up in history because people think like the medieval era is just i don't know for maybe like 700 800 a.d until like 1400 a.d they don't know that there are different little periods sometimes in that yeah it's not like a concrete split it's like a blurring process that it... yeah a bit of a, yeah that's a good way to put it like in uh I think, like, for example, in uh, My Python, the Holy Grail, that takes place in, like, 9-11 AD. Mm -hmm. And uh, um, is that something that when, you know, if you read a review, like, I've actually seen a couple of reviews already up on the uh, on the Amazon page for the book that, that kind of compare it to My Python. Is that something that uh, you, you, you find flattering, or is it something that 
Oh, no, no, there are so many other influences than that. Uh, I think it's flattering because Monty Python in general and Monty Python the Holy Grail are some of, like, the funniest things out there. So since the book is comedic, it's yeah. I take it in stride, and I like that. <laughs> and of course, it was an influence um, since I've seen that movie and the TV show tons and tons of times growing up. But, of course, I was also um, aware of that would be a very big... Um, what did we call it? comparative point? So mm. when I did do something that was a little close to the Holy Grail, I tried to put a different spin on it so mm. that it would come off less of stealing and more of an homage. Yeah, I, I kind of got that too. That, but it, it, even if it's an homage, it's still you know you have it very much in a world where things get bloody in this book. <laughs> that they do. There's a lot of gratuitous violence. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and um. And also, the other thing I wanted to bring up is another influence, I'm sure, and I don't think I'm inferring this because you mentioned it in your trailers and on, I guess, elsewhere in media. Um, I just, uh, in the past couple of days, watched uh, the movie of uh, The Name of the Rose mm -hmm. for the first time. Oh. And, uh, I mean, I didn't have enough time to read the book, unfortunately, <laughs> but uh, that, I could, I could tell watching that 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 was obviously a big kind of touch point for you for this yeah i was a big fan of both the book and the movie and i like to describe the book to people as uh, what happens when you put uh, the name of the rose plus the adventures of rocky and bullwinkle into a blender and hit frappe <laughs> so yeah that's not bad that's not bad uh, yeah the rock rock green bullwinkle definitely fits in there it's just super irreverence to the point where you know you have talking animals and uh you have, like, a lot of magic, but a lot of it's really tongue-in-cheek. Yes. Um, and cliffhangers. <laughs> it seemed like that, yes. <laughs> cliffhangers and also very detailed uh, explanations of what's going to happen in the chapter before the chapter starts. Like, <laughs> <laughs> on each chapter page, when you read this book, uh, it comes across, you know, you see a little bit of a description, and it lists... Uh, certain things um yeah actually, let me do that the first one yeah or not even the first one why don't you go to another chapter okay. like the second one and um, read what the what what would it read for as kind of giving an indication of what's to come in uh in the book uh, let, me, let me do something that's better than the second one um okay uh i like part the 10th because that's just okay. an overall good chapter sure um okay part the 10th Wherein Brother Benos duels for his life with twin blades, Faruza sniffs out a thief, a table is overturned in haste, and costly pottery is destroyed in front of the owner's eyes. <laughs> yeah, little things like you. I think part of a lot of the humor in this book comes from certain little bits of minutia or little things like pottery <laughs> that are <laughs> getting destroyed. Uh, so that that's really important to you to make that you know, as humorous as possible. Yeah. Yeah. And what do you think it is about, like, monks that is kind of funny? Is it because they're, you know, they're not knights? No. They're, they're kind of in this sort of gray area where they're not peasants, they're not super chivalrous, they've dedicated their lives to uh, uh, to serving God, but they're, uh, they're, they're kind of vulnerable. Yeah, I, that's why I kind of like them, that they're like a separate class unto themselves. They're not really nobility, and they're not really peasants. They're 
an in-between sort of group. And of course, you can get monks from all sorts of the different classes back in the medieval era. Everyone has a backstory before they became a monk. So that's also an interesting mm. thing. And I, I thought it was just funny to have um, some guy who's a monk who's, of course, very pious and trying to uphold uh, his vows. And you put him in a situation where he's the first time in decades leaving his monastery and he's encountering people who have not taken up monkly vows and who are very rude and coarse. And um, and then they don't treat him with the respect that you would expect um, mm. a monk to be treated with. Because, you know, that's sort of like a, a thing that you, like in the Middle Ages, ah, blah, 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 blah. so you'd expect a monk to be treated with reverence because they've uh, taken well, vows. Well, because it's the Christian era. Yeah. It's, uh... Or as they call it in the name of the rose, Christendom. Right. Uh. <laughs> they, they sort of they've devoted themselves to a um, a life of God and religion, and so the expectation was that you you treat them very reverently. But in terms of comedy, it's much more funny if you subvert that and have yeah. everybody like treat him like dung. <laughs> <laughs> did um did you draw in large part from from the book, or did you also look at any? history of actual monks or brothers was that anything that you sort of did in the process of writing the book there was a lot of research involved which probably didn't make it into the page just mm. because that's a, the, you just needed it yourself i just needed it myself to get a background in things uh, of course mm. the name of the rose was a very good primer on things but as far as research goes a lot of it went towards uh looking up different forms of heresies mm. that were existed at that time or a little bit before that we go into a lot of strange different sects that um were sort of eradicated or no longer popular anymore yeah and the other thing too in the name of the rose is that it's very much about books <laughs> and uh and a library uh, very much uh has a big plot point in this book um, what was it? The I forget what it is exactly because it's been a while since I read the book. But um, there is it that the the baboon doesn't work at the library. The baboon doesn't work at the library. The baboon goes to the library. Okay. At the end. Yes. Yeah, and it's a very big library that also I believe it all. There's also a dragon. There is a dragon. Which you would hope there's always a dragon in one yes. of these books. <laughs> <laughs> But of course. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's kind of funny because when I uh, first met you, uh, this goes back to the days of William Patterson, uh, you worked at a library. I did. On campus. Is that something that you've always just felt comfortable in libraries surrounded by books? Yes, I'm very comfortable being surrounded by books. <laughs> <laughs> Which is why I had to make one myself. Yes, you had to contribute to the space yeah. so that you could kind of walk by and just see, oh, there's my book, now e I can move along. Exactly. Yeah. My work here is done. Yeah. Was that, uh, I don't know, is that like, in another life, do you almost picture maybe you could have been like a librarian yourself? Um, yeah, I still could, theoretically. I just have to go back and get, like, a degree in library science and then get myself into the stacks. And yeah. There we go. Yeah. How, um, so, um, when it comes to this book, so, I, I, I again, I was under the impression, I guess, talking to you that this was originally a book that you wrote for, uh, back at William Patterson as a college thesis project. But it almost but it goes back even further it, than that. It does go back further. I started writing it in high school wow. and I it I did it on and off for a little bit, but it really only got finished when I went to um, William Patterson and I did it for my honors humanity thesis. Mm. And so when you were kind of writing it on and off, it was just for fun for yourself. Oh yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. And uh, what were, were in terms of that? So that goes back again. It, some 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 people out there think, oh, people just write a book really fast, like. Stephen King you know, craps out a book like every few months or something, <laughs> but it really takes a lot longer than that, especially if uh, you know, especially if you're trying to be an author for the first time or you don't have that kind of exposure. Um, like when it comes to dra- like doing all these drafts, like how much changes just organically, or how much time do you have to think about what you're going to do? Um, it. It really depends, because you, know, you find something different every time you look at it, and you just go through and be like, oh, wow, that's really stupid. I need to change that right now. How did that get past like, the last eight drafts? Like, that's just awful. And then um, <laughs> a, lot, like it, and a lot of times it's like, yep, still like that, still like that, still like that. That's good. Ooh, I saw something else. I got to put that in. Where can I put that in? I'm putting it in there. So, um, yeah, it's... Uh, it's, it's I, I think a, a, a way to liken it is... Uh, some people have said it's almost like when you're ironing, you uh-huh. have to go over one spot and go back a little bit over another and go back again and iron a little bit more. Yeah. So, um, like, so are there any parts that have survived since, like, high school? Yeah, pretty much. Um, a lot of it's, like, the, fir- the first um, several chapters are all pretty much there. I didn't cut a lot out of the book, so there's hmm. maybe... Uh, three or four short scenes that have just either been excised or been completely re- reworked. Mm. So yeah. So we're not. So we can't really expect. Uh, like you're, you're, you know, there are no plans though that you'll one day give us like a full uncut edition, like the stand or something like that. <laughs> I don't think so because. That the scenes that I cut don't really work anymore mm. with the rest of the revised work. I mean, I could put them out somewhere just to show, hey, this is what didn't make it in. But then, you know, you always run the risk of people saying, well, I like the deleted scene better than the actual book. Why don't you go with that? Mm. <laughs> so. yeah. yeah, I mean, the thing in this book, too, is that there are, a lot of very, there are a lot of outrageous characters. There are a lot of people who have... Very broad names, which you know goes back a little bit to Python, like the the knights who say ni, and uh, and uh, Tim the the guard, um, the enchanter, the enchanter. Excuse me, sorry, I should have known. Um, like, does it take? How long does that process take? Do you just kind of immediately think up like? A name for some of these people? Uh, it depends. Like sometimes it comes easy, and sometimes you're thinking about it. But a lot of times. You're sort of thinking of a description of that character, and then you said, okay, that description is just going to be that character's name. We'll put it all in caps, and that's the character's name. That's There we go. We're good to go now. Mm. So. And you also, there are also a lot of running gags in this <laughs> book. Is there, like, a favorite of yours that you kind of like uh, writing a lot? Favorite running gag? Um, hmm. That's a good question. I don't know if there's a particular favorite one. Um... Let's see. There's there's running gags about people's identity, which I don't want to uh, reveal yeah, too much. But um, there are assumptions of who people are, and then there's a lot of build up, and then foreshadowing, or maybe you don't see the foreshadowing because you're not expecting there to be a reveal. Yeah. But then when it happens, you're like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess guess one of those. Yeah. yeah. So a lot of embracing the absurd yeah. sort of qualities. Um. But I guess though, I mean, again, this is you know a large part of fantasy book. Does that go back to your childhood? Like, when did that 
Did that start when you were really little, like uh, fa- like in fantasy oh, literature, yeah. or fantasy things like yeah, that? Yeah, I've I've been a fan of fantasy for uh, quite some time. So. Quite some time. <laughs> were, were there any books when you were a kid that really uh, struck your imagination? Um, well, I really liked the Lord of the Rings, of course, mm-hmm. and then uh, I also liked the National Lampoon parody, Board of the Rings. That was uh, and <laughs> Board of the Rings. Yeah, Board of the Rings. I've never heard of that. Yeah, it's an actual book put out by mm-hmm. the. Uh, Harvard Lampoon or the National Lampoon back in like the 70s. Huh. Yeah. Um, and it was a full book. It wasn't like in their magazine. It wasn't in the something. magazine. It was like about like a little shorter than this. The okay. My book. Um, what else, what other good books are there out there? Well, there was, well, I mean, I know for kids, like there's, uh, like when I was a kid, I read like the Phantom Tollbooth. Yeah, and, I read uh, that, yeah. And um, of course, a lot of Roald Dahl's books Roald really Dahl, have wonderful. big fantasy. Yes. So that must have been a big influence for you. Yeah, I love me some Roald Dahl. Yeah. Uh, I, Alice in Wonderland, of course. You need to pay homage to Lewis Carroll, making wonderful nonsense books. Oh, yeah. I yeah. mean, I, I think without Lewis Carroll, in, in a way, you wouldn't have a book like Brother no. Bingo's. Because even though it involves a quest like... The, for the Holy Grail or for the Ring, it's uh, you know, it's it's you still need that sense of mischief and lots of random characters. Yes. Um, and uh, and again, I know that also for you, uh, that goes back as well for like cartoons and stuff. I mean, I think we kind of grew up at a time where uh, we had kind of a plethora of just absurd, crazy shit on TV. That was a good age for cartoons. Yes. Yeah. So. I'm sure stuff like Animaniacs. Animaniacs, Pinky and the Brain, Freakazoid. Mm. Um, and again, you know, it's funny that, you know, Rocky and Bullwinkle, I mean, that is a, technically it's a cartoon from the 60s, but that got kind of a revival in the 90s. It, they used to play it on Nickelodeon a lot. Yeah, and it helped that my parents were fans and we had, mm. like, the VHS tapes, so I was able to watch yeah. those a lot as a kid. I'm not sure how I got into it. I think it was from just... Uh, I don't know. I, I just thought that the cover looked for one of the tapes looked interesting, and uh, and I just had to watch them all. <laughs> <laughs> and it's funny because they're like people think it's just Rocky and Bullwinkle, but there are a lot of different segments on those shows. Yeah. You know, you had Peabody and Sherman. You had uh, Aesop's Fables. You had um, Dudley Do Right. Yeah, Dudley Do Right, Fractured Fairy Tales. So lots of different things in that. Mm-hmm. Um, was there one favorite? Was it ro- just Rocky and Bullwinkle? For you? Um, I know, I like Rocky and Bullwinkle a lot, but then I also um, really liked uh, Dudley Do Right and Fractured Fairy Tales. So mm. those are my top three, basically. Mm. Yeah, it's uh, you know, sometimes it 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 take it it feels like that you can just kind of pull the absurd. Some people think, oh, people can be absurd just like with the the blink of an eye. It's very easy, but is it, is it difficult at all to pull out that kind of stuff? And, uh, and we can get into this a little bit more with filler in a second, but Mm -hmm. like, maybe you could comment on that a little bit, like what it means to you to have to have the absurd. So front and center in one of your stories. I mean, um, it depends. Cause basically you just want to, I mean, with fantasy, of course, uh, looking back at old fantasy stories, there's a bunch of, like, magic and 
Um, it's also a lot of strange things that just kind of happen in the book that don't make any logical sense, but they're just there because of like oral tradition or something like that. And so you kind of have to seize upon them and say like, yes, we're definitely going there. I'm going to put it in your face. Like we're, you can't just gloss over the weird part. The weird part is part of your main dish Hmm. and we're going to, um, make you see that. And then. Of course, it's a little bit harder, too, because you want to be absurd, but you don't want to be too tedious. And mm. so I wanted to cut myself off of certain points before I exhausted the joke and became boring. Mm. Was there... Um, um, now, uh, did when you were writing it... Um... What did you get any con- like? Did you show it to any people and people like gave you feedback like, oh, this is this is too much. You should cut back, and you'd be like, nope. Or <laughs> <laughs> or or did you or did they give helpful comments? I guess that depended too. Uh, you know, back when I started writing in high school, I showed it a lot to my family and a couple friends. And I didn't really get too much constructive feedback then. Mm. Uh, they just said, this is really good. I like this. It's funny. Keep going. Mm. And um, basically, I'm trying to think. Most helpful feedback uh, might have been when I was doing it for my thesis with mm. Professor Peterman because uh, he really wanted me to amp up um, the historical uh, research aspects of it and mm. get a more concrete sense of place and themes. So that helped me go back and revise and hammer things out so there was more focus in the book because it used to be um, more freewheeling and episodic. There wasn't really mm. a lot of linkage between the different um, chapters, but now there's a much stronger plot lines and emotional through lines yeah. going through. Yeah, you can follow the... you know, Even if you go off on a tangent, you're still... Wondering, okay, what's going to happen to Brother Bano's next? How is he going to get out of this scenario? Mm-hmm. You know, what happens when he meets these little magical characters? Do you, how much do you invest in them, really? Yeah. So, um, and uh, also the other thing, too, like, so, um, when you're younger, I know that one of your passions as well is action figures. Maybe yeah. you could talk about, like, that, that That probably just started out of just being a, a kid and loving action figures, right? Yeah, pretty much. Um, I liked action figures, and so I received action figures as, as gifts a lot for birthdays and Christmases and so forth. And my father is also a collector of certain toys and mm. statues and models, so there was, like, a tradition of having figural stuff but um i'm not trying to think i don't know necessarily that influenced the book so much as if i just wanted the characters in the book to look distinctive so if there were ever was a chance that there is a brother bano's action figure line that you know <laughs> you would be able to say this is this is that character yeah. they have a distinctive look and a distinctive accessories distinctive coloring and personality that yeah, kind of thing that's so. interesting i it's funny that when i was asking that i wasn't necessarily going towards that direction but uh-huh. maybe that's do you think though is that where your mind kind of travels maybe someday i'll have action figures out of some of these characters like the all-seeing insect of doom or something yeah like that. that'd be great i love that <laughs> <laughs> i guess i was asking more on a personal level just because that's another one of your passions yeah like, because yeah. you know some you know again some people uh when it comes to geek culture and things or, or nerd culture they kind of forget the action figures are huge in that mm-hmm. and yeah. uh you know and some people think that oh when i turn like 13 14 i have to get rid of all my toys i have to start doing grown-up things but that that stuck with you all through high school right yeah never do grown-up things (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, um, never do grow up thing. But but I mean though the point that you you actually even will like touch up your action figures. Right? Yeah, I I will customize them because I'm insane and I will look at them <laughs> and say this is not accurate. I need to fix this. This is a sloppy paint job. They missed this detail. So huh. I'll go and, and customize them until I'm I'm satisfied with them. Hmm. Yeah, so in a way, so it's not just writing, you're also in, you know, designing is very important for you. Yeah, in a way. Yeah, yeah well, but also because the other thing, and I should have mentioned this earlier, you do all the drawings and illustrations yes. in Brother Baynotes. Yeah, there's a, a bunch of paintings in the book that I was uh, had to do myself, and that's, of course, where the, uh, the uh, figure design comes from, that I wanted each of them to be um, very recognizable, because, of course... Um, it's set in there in the Middle Ages, the late Middle Ages, but um, it's also a fantasy book, so I guess most of the designs fit more in line with a fantasy setting than a medieval setting, but mm. I want them to, like, if you if you saw them in a movie, you'd have um, the characters, the main characters, and they would be contrasted against, like, the extras. The extras would be, like, stock medieval casting, then you'd have the main characters who would be more distinctive looking. Mm. And I know that you, I know you said you drew, you made a lot of paintings, and and we should, I should make it clear for the, the listeners that I'm not talking about, oh, I made some little sketches and I sent them off to the publisher. You made full, like, uh, what were they acrylic paintings? They're acrylic paintings, yeah. Yeah, so how important was that for you to go through that process? That was an important process because there was a long period of time where I was sending off the book trying to find an agent or a publisher, and I kept getting rejection letters back and saying, sorry, this is not for us. And so I was trying to think of ways to make the book more appealing, and since I'm an artist, I said, I'll illustrate some scenes for people so that hmm. you can say, yep, this happens in the book right there. As a, as a presentation point and I would attach them in the emails with the first couple chapters say hey look at the paintings nobody else is doing books with pictures anymore so this is really distinctive hmm. and it will catch people's attention still getting a lot of rejections but it just made me go back and read read chapters and I would do paintings for a bunch of them and then that helped me revise the book too because I would say okay uh, what details from this chapter do I need to put in this painting? And I'd look at the painting and say, okay, what details do I add in that I need to put into the book to make sure the <laughs> readers understand that's what it's supposed to look like, that scene? Mm. So, yeah, and then they made it into the real book, too, which I'm very happy about that. First-time author, first-time book illustrator on one <laughs> shot. Yeah, so you it's like you also own those designs as well. Yeah. I was considering maybe doing prints for the book. I don't know what the feedback on that would be like if any of the readers or your listeners out there would also like to get color prints of the the paintings. I can look into doing that. So hit us up in the comment section. You have a comment well, section, right? Um, yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and we also have a Facebook page. I should men I'll mention later on about your social media, but okay. uh, yeah. um and so again, like you're, like I said, you're a man of many hats. Again, like so, while you're in college, you're you're writing this book, and then you also make a short film. Filler. I did, yes. Um, why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about what filler is? Uh, filler is a short film that I wrote with uh, Andrew Birchnow, our my co-host on the Wage of Cinema, by the way. Yeah, and. Plug. Yes, and it's about a mad scientist who invents a food teleporter. Every day we raise billions of trees to make wrappings for food that we discard with ignorance. The destruction of our own planet is sinisterly tied to the stuffing of our own obscene faces with barely edible slop. 
I have determined that our current behavior of unmitigated mastication is outmoded and corrupt. I shall bring eating into the 22nd century with my revolutionary food teleporter. I shall end famine and waste forever. That looks suspiciously like an overhead projector. <laughs> and uh, Jack was in it. I, I do have a small part, yes, and my wife Corey is in it, and uh, you know that was a very that was just a very low down, gritty, fun, independent movie. Yes. Um, did you have any thoughts about like, okay, have I like you hadn't direct had you directed before? I had directed some stuff in high school, but shorter okay. projects, nothing mm. as grandiose as filler. So kind of just like fooling around with your friends and stuff like yeah that. which is more or less what filler ended up being but on like a much more impressive scale <laughs> <laughs> yeah um and the other thing too you can check out filler on uh macatania's youtube page and it's also on filler um it's uh so making that were there any were there any times where it got really difficult for you or was it just kind of like oh this is fun let's let's do this um it was difficult because i hadn't of course made a full blown movie for like ever like just doing shorts i mean this was a, a longer short but uh yeah so i have to also just sort of get my head back in the game and work with different technical aspects of it and work with actors work with actors actors scheduling the actors is a big hassle pre-production is always a big hassle <laughs> yeah there were there were actors that were going to come on and help me and they dropped at the last moment and that was frustrating and it was also frustrating because i was doing that was i made that my senior year so there's a whole bunch of other things i was doing i was doing uh the brother Bainos as my honors thesis and then i was also running the literary magazine zeitgeist at mm -hmm. the time yeah and just getting ready to graduate and trying to also do all my other classes working at the library so there was a whole bunch of things i had to juggle at the same time so that was stressful yeah <laughs> um but it came out like the way that you had hoped for like or there's not or there's nothing that you would really change that much about it no i i was pleased with it i'm it was it was a fun movie it looked basically like i wanted it to in my head of course like you know if i had like several million dollars we'd make a super duper <laughs> version of filler but you know you you, you you have to be careful not to make it like you know, I know you'd have the talent for it, but don't make it like the asylum filler. <laughs> <laughs> the, the asylum filler would be called filled or something. <laughs> they would get like another ripoff title for it. Yeah, but I was I was very pleased with the reaction to it because it won a top prize for the alternative film category at, at the that, student film festival. Yeah, that year, and that was pretty awesome because I was not actually a film student when I made filler. <laughs> <laughs> you were kind of you kind of snuck in there. Yeah, and, and made this thing. Uh, even though I mean there were a lot of people involved with the film club. Yeah, like, you know you had Matt Rosen as your cinematographer, and Fred Henry was your lead actor and my editor. Oh yes, and your editor too. Uh, probably my favorite piece of trivia about that movie though. Uh, and it's funny because I think, you know, if you go on the IMDb page for filler, uh, you'll see a lot of interesting nuggets. And my favorite one was that uh, uh, you gave all of your you gave your footage to Fred, and it was on just too many DV tapes. And he said something like, "You either are very efficient or you don't have enough coverage." And he responded with both. <laughs> <laughs> That story gets me all the time. Um, was that um, 
would you, do you think you'd ever return to doing a little movie? Do you think that time has passed? Um, I don't know, because it's, I'm not in a university setting anymore. So back then, we were all in film clubs, so we would hang out every week. And then we'd have um, people would be able to get us equipment and stuff. And we'd just be able to say, hey, do you want to be in this shot next week? We can work something out. So there was a whole infrastructure in place already, whereas now... We're all living separately, and so it's a much bigger hassle sort of production deal to get everybody back together and mm. working on something. And so. But do you ever have ideas for things that maybe you would like, oh, maybe that could work as like a little short film? Uh, maybe. I haven't given it too much thought. I've mm. been aiming more. Um, more in the literary more world. More in the literary world. But I mean, I started to write a script for The Dolorous Adventure of Brother Banos a couple years ago before oh. I got the publishing deal. So maybe I'll finish the screenplay and sell it to Hollywood or something. Mm. It'd be like, it'd be full blown Douglas Adams. Have yeah. both the book and the screenplay and like maybe a radio play or something like yeah, that. Yeah, we should do a radio play. Of all things, actually, uh, because of your all the artistic intent maybe like i almost see it as like a like a graphic novel or something hmm. had you ever put thought into that i know you're in big into comic books as well yeah i mean it could work, definitely work as a as a graphic novel um would you do you think maybe you would lose some of the prose uh it's a trade-off unless i do a lot of narration boxes yeah a lot of bubbles yeah <laughs> um, um now what uh um, what was I going to ask you next? Um, oh, yeah, well, um, now, of course, the other thing, too, with you that's going on is that for a long time, uh, you've been writing articles yes. for websites. How did the, how did that get started for you? Um, actually, that got started, um, funnily enough, uh, I was a reader of Topless Robot, which mm. is now the robot's voice, and which I, well, I don't know why they changed the name of it's that. A, it's a corporate thing. Yeah. But, but anyhow, I think you're the first one to that sent me a link to an article by Topless Robot. So I'm oh. gonna actually blame you for my writing career now. <laughs> um, so yeah, so I started f reading them because Jack sent me an article by them, and then I'm sure uh, you would have found them eventually. Eventually, but anyhow, so. Um, they do. They did daily lists, and sometimes they weren't written by the original editor of the site. They'd be written by guest contributors. And so, um, one day I or one year I was in Washington D.C. for Easter, visiting my sister. And around that time, the original editor, uh, Rob Bricken, was having a birthday party at a local bar, and he said, "Oh yeah, readers come by and see me." So I came and met him in person. We had oh. some drinks, and I said, "Hey, how do I go about being a guest contributor?" It's like, "Oh, you just email me, and then I see if I like your pitch, and then we, we run with it." So that's how. That how easy. That yeah, that's how it happened. Yeah. <laughs> you have drinks with someone who's in charge. <laughs> <laughs> that actually, you, you laugh, but that is how a lot of things happen in the entertainment business. You just meet the right person, yeah, and the ball gets rolling. Mm -hmm. um, and since then, you've also written for io9. Yes, as I have. Well. Mm -hmm. um, which is is it different writing for one side or the other? Do, does it kind of blur? At uh, times? There's definitely a difference um, with Topless Robot or the Robot's Voice. Basically, I would um, pitch him like a list of things I want to write about, and they say yay or nay, and then I go off and I write my article, take however long I want, then I send it in and say it's ready to run, and they run it whenever they have time to schedule. When I was writing for io9, uh, they wanted me as a, 
our weekend guest editor, so mm. I had to be prepared with five or six different articles to run in that day. So well, that I, happened this past year, right? Yeah, that was that just, was pretty amazing. That was that was great. I had a lot of fun with that, but that was a different thing because I had to be looking for news that just was current and I could say something about, and mm. it also had to be something that the other writers hadn't already written about, or that it's part of the Gawker Empire. So if maybe one, Io9 hadn't written about it, but maybe one of your affiliates wrote about it, so that would also mm. be off limits. So it'd be kind of taxing trying to see, okay, what is new that people would be excited about that I could say something that hasn't already mm. been covered somewhere else. Is and there I, a lot of comp? Is there a, there must be a lot of competition uh, in a way because if you're if you want to write about something and all of a sudden you go to the site and it's like crap, it's written about. Well, I'd have um kinda, but I mean um. Because I, I guess I just know because I used to write for a website for a little bit, uh, this like UK site called Focus Film, and it'd be tough to come up with certain articles because it'd be like, well, what news can I report? Because it's we're kind of a lot of websites kind of repeat the same news. Yeah, that that was a kind of a problem. But uh, my editor there, uh, Charlie Jane Anders, she'd say like, nope, we're already writing this. Pick something else and <laughs> give me some some good feedback on that. So. It was just, just a different daunting process that I had to be there, and I had to get a lot of stories in a limited amount of time, whereas Talpus, the robot's voice usually gives you more leisure to just write your article however you want. Unless mm. it's an article that's time-sensitive, like I've written lists about like what are the best um, exclusives for San Diego Comic-Con, and I had to, of course, get that ready to roll before San Diego Comic-Con happened. Mm. So, yeah. Have you uh, tried submitted for any other sites? Are there any that you really would love to write for? I don't know if there's any that I would pick. Let me think about that again. I had pitched an article to Cracked, hmm. and they their submission process is like on their message boards, and it goes to review, and it got rejected. But it was really seemed to be pretty arbitrary that they're hmm. like, oh, nah, blah blah blah. And I was like, why why are you not picking this? This is a good thing. I have a lot of different entries for it. So they were being jerks and it didn't work <laughs> out but i sold the same article that i was pitching them to topless robot so you know it all works out mm. and Would i want to try write for them again i don't know if it's worth it really i mean they pay better and there's more exposure but i don't know if it's worth like going through all going the, through the rigmarole yeah and i'm a big fan of the mary sue and so i'd write something for them but we haven't figured out um mm. what yet so okay Putting that, that out there, the Mary Sue. Put put it out into the universe, yes. so to speak. <laughs> um, and uh, are you st you're you're still writing for both Topless Robot and Io9? Like, are you I'm, writing things that maybe people can expect? Soon? I'm still writing things for uh, the Robot's Voice. There's stuff in the pipeline for that, and I'm awaiting a callback from Io9 if they want more things from me. So mm. contact Io9 if you would like me to write for them some more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, the thing too that I notice when I read a lot of your articles. Uh, just like in you know your book and filler, you there's a lot of humor mm -hmm. in your writing there. Like, so is it? Would it be tough if you tried to just write like a straight kind of serious opinion piece? Do you? Is it like? Is it maybe a kind of thing where I almost can't help but be funny? <laughs> um, it depends. Um, because I got my journalism start um, when I was writing for Legal as she was Legal as she spoke, which was the um 
uh, legal news blog for uh, New York Law School. So those pieces tended to be drier. I uh, would basically report on uh, news topics and try to make them understandable to lay audience people who hadn't had legal educations. Mm -hmm. So those had less jokes. They had a little bit of jokes, but as far as um, the robot's voice is concerned, they skew towards humor, so they definitely do want more humor in the articles. Mm. Um, okay, yeah, so they're... Uh, yeah, because uh, on io9, it varies. Sometimes I read articles that are just batshit crazy, and like you, you almost are clicking on them because of the content is crazy, but other times they're dealing with more serious issues. Yeah, it depends, because... It, it really depends what you have to work with, too, yeah. because um, sometimes you just get a press release. So if you just set it straight, there's nothing you're really adding to it. Yeah. So you have to go a little bit more opinionated and a little bit weirder with it you're writing. Yeah. I guess sometimes it depends, too, because I've read certain articles where you'll talk about, like, I don't know, for example, like, uh, you, maybe you wrote about this, maybe not, but, like, obscure Ninja Turtle characters or mm -hmm. something like yeah. that. Or, uh the best characters from the tick or something like something that. Something like that. Yeah, so with, when dealing with that, it's it's almost hard to do that with a straight face because yeah. you're dealing with, you know, char you know, like a you know, with characters who are so outrageous. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and of course that helps too because they already have the jokes kind of written for you. Because... <laughs> yeah, in a way they kind of do half your work. They do, yeah. You, you, you hack. <laughs> Uh, I, I kid. <laughs> um, so, um, so with this book, um, with so you, again, you have this universe that you've sort of created with the, and all these characters. Would it be? Would you ever think about like, would this be a series for you, or are you kind of leaving it for now just at this? Uh, for now, I'm leaving it as a standalone book. I mean, there is the possibility for me to go in and do more things with it. But I have to actually think of some things to do first, or I need to get very desperate for money. So <laughs> what, either both inspiration or desperation is required before I write more in the same universe. Or if it sells really well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, but there are other things maybe that you would want to write about as well. Oh, definitely, yeah. Um, um, whether genres interest you. Uh, I get a lot, I'm just thinking there's a lot of good genres out there. Um, that's another thing that I don't... I don't think of myself particularly as writing for genre. I like mm. to do crossovers between things. I don't see yeah. straight lines. Yeah, uh, I guess because this book, you know, I, we could say that it's a medieval comedy, but there are like there are certain elements that kind of verge on horror. Yeah. And it, uh, you know, I guess you could say romance because there is kind of a romance in the story. Yes. Um, that's the thing. Like, I don't like just astonished by themselves i don't want to call it mashup really because that seems mm. a bit um derisive but um are there certain authors that uh like who are, who are some of your main guys or or women right now uh main guys and women right now i uh walter mowers he's a german author and he writes a series of, of fantasy books set in uh zamonia but he, that's really cool because um, they're what's Zemonia? It's a it's a fantasy land. Okay. So, but they're like in one shared universe kind of thing. But he does a lot of good wordplay, and he's um, very funny and does a lot of uh, fantasy stuff. Um, so I I like him a lot. He's kind of like a Douglas Adams, who is a okay. a big influence on me. Um, yeah, I, and, I could tell. <laughs> and 
who is who else is good? I mean, there's tons of great authors out there. Uh, Neil Gaiman's great because he basically can do anything. He, he's a natural-born storyteller. Oh yeah. You know, like when you I read like the whole run of the Sandman last year, and it's just you get so immersed into that universe. Yeah, and um, I just discovered uh, Jasper Ford, who does the Thursday Next series, and he did uh, Shades of Grey, which is so much better than Fifty Shades of Grey, and he's uh, wonderful too because he also does a lot of things with um, text jokes and really deep cuts of strange um, esoteric references, so mm. it's good. Um, Sweet. Um... I guess it's some of the names just off the top of your head. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure I'll I'll think of more later and be like, damn, why didn't I plug that person? You Uh, can put it in the comments. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, yeah, I mean, I hope, uh, like, um, any other thoughts about what you hope for people to take away from the book? Like, what would would be, like, some of the things that maybe you'd want readers to think about when they read this? Um, Well, I hope they don't hate it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, I mean... I, was I guess to... one of the things is that they found it funny, maybe. Oh, definitely. Like, I hope they're entertained and stuff. And uh, that they get that it's set in a medieval context. So um, being there is not going to be the most um, welcoming and charming characters by like today's standards. There's a lot of xenophobia and misogyny on, mm. in the characters. Not that the book itself is necessarily shares those opinions, but just that there's a lot of crummy characters back then and we're hopefully much better far along advanced as society by now that so we're several hundred years yeah, off that's part of the satire yes you know, yeah in line with uh you know the bring out your dead from my python or something like that yeah in a way that you don't necessarily have to like read it as like a straight adventure story it is supposed to be uh satire as you say and, okay um all right, man. I, I uh, So where can people find you? Uh, I have a blog that I do weekly. It's called uh, mattthecatania.wordpress.com, and I occasionally do freelance stuff, which I will alert you to on the blog, and I have, of course, a Facebook fan page for the blog and the same name, and a Twitter and I'm on Goodreads. Matt, Matt V. Catania. Yeah, right? Matt V. Catania. M-A-T-T-H-E-C-A-T-A-N-I-A. We got it. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and also the same Facebook page is there as well, and you can see a lot of updates about your work and, uh, and maybe uh, new things about your book. Yeah, and you can check me out on Goodreads, too, and Twitter. I have an Amazon author page now. Uh, yeah. I um, is, uh, and you can buy the book on, we should say, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and wherever books are still sold, right? Yeah, it's also on iTunes for the ebook version. I'm sure you can, if you don't want to order online, you can get your uh, local bookshop to special order it for you. comes in either ebook or paperback formats from Booktrope. Got to plug Booktrope because without them, there would be no book. They're wonderful. Thanks, guys. Yes, uh, definitely thank Booktrope there. And um, and as usual, I'm Jack, and uh, remember, the wages of cinema is death. Have a good day.